House of the Dragon, Season 1, Episode 2, The Rogue Prince. Alright, so we get a real introduction this episode with the classic Game of Thrones music, which I'm glad that they did that. Stuck with that. They're telling us that they we're in the same universe, and the music is just hard to beat. I like the continuity of that, too. And it bounces around, so it's blood bouncing around a different, I guess, sigils, little chess pieces or whatever. So what we discussed while we were watching is that I think we landed on bloodlines, and maybe it's going through the Targaryens, starting with the conquest by Aegon and possibly moving through his heirs. So I assume one of those was Magor and one was Jaehaerys. But I don't exactly know. But I think yeah. that, that's as good a, a guess as we can come up with at this time. There's clearly pieces that have different emblems on them. And some that you can clearly see and others you can barely see. It also mixes with water at the end. So, I don't know, blood thicker than water. Or made, well, me, made they, me think of Valeria falling into the sea or whatever happened. If it's literally bloodlines, it means they have to start taking in non-Targaryens. Oh, so it's getting diluted in the water? Yeah. I mean, if you go with that theme. Because, I mean, they famously stayed within the family, which it's the whole reason why supposedly the Mad King was mad. All right. So the first scene is just a very short clip of the crabs, the crab feeder, so that stuff in the stepstone. Pretty horrific view of a guy, you know, in pain, getting munched by the crabs. And, that's and just... there's several people that's happening, too. Um, so it's, it's a whole torture dungeon out in the open there. I thought it was so telling how they started with the crab feeder. It looks really gruesome. And then we immediately pan to the small council and they are talking about some guy who died, which I think it's, it's actually important who died. It, it's one of the, uh, the King's guard. But I, what I like about it is you see the seriousness of what's happening here. We're starting off, we're seeing how bad that is. It's what Corliss is talking about. And yet the small council, can't really be bothered to be more concerned about it. Yeah, it seems so obvious that if that's happening in Westeros, they have no choice but to address it. Now, to be fair, that's when Corliss walked in and said, you know, this is happening. The crab feeder is, you know, doing all this stuff. But Hightower already seemed aware of it. I guess Viserys is already aware of it. Yeah, they all are. Yeah. They're just not overly concerned. And I think it's a great demonstration of how much this small council as a whole and Cor uh, Corliss, there is a division there already. It, it, it's This was a great job to show that, even though it's demonstrated throughout the rest of the episode. And Corliss has a line which comes up a few, some, something similar a few times in this episode. And he says, what reason does the crab feeder have to fear us? You know, that'll come up later when Rhaenyra offers some solutions and stuff like that. But basically, the, the overall impression is that the series is... Uh, Weep. Yeah, not to be feared. Yeah, and, and I don't think it's just the crab feeder. I think Corliss's line here is indicative of the realm. The rest of the uh, Essos and Westeros is just, this is a problem. And Corliss would know, because being someone who built up his house the way he has, and especially in the waters, that's got to be pretty like precarious, dangerous. He, he's had to manage a lot to be that successful and that wealthy. He, he's not no one here. Yeah, if somebody of his stature is bringing it up, you should take it seriously. Almost whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. And then they also find out that Damon has been squatting at Dragonstone for the last six months. And so he did not listen. You said this last episode of like, is he actually going to go back to where his wife is? And Right, he did not go to the Vale. He went and declared himself king of Dragonstone. 
Well, because he doesn't fear the series either. Yeah. Hightower shuts Corliss down here again and says something to the effect of not all kings are equal. So this is another thing that comes up in this episode a few times where Corliss is being reminded mm-hmm. that we have a king. You are not it and Damon is not it. And then Rhaenyra, in my opinion, wisely proposes that we have dragon flyers. Why don't we send one over there? Well, do you know what she specifically says? So she reminds them we have dragon riders, and she says, send us. Yeah, so that would be her and Damon. Correct, which I think is very telling her word choice there, because that small council does not want to touch Damon with a 10-foot pole, and they don't take her seriously. But she's reminding them, I'm more than your cupbearer here. Not only is she the heir and the princess, but also a dragon rider, and... From my point of view, it seems an obvious solution. We talked about this in our in our quick podcast, but they don't even necessarily have to do anything. Just a once-over with a couple dragons, and that might set things straight. You know, it's like they, they don't even have to send fire and blood necessarily. They could just freak them out, potentially. I guess, I guess if it doesn't work, then they're committed to Rhaenyra, she does say this, and before she gets totally shut down by Hightower, Corliss... It's similar to when he says, we already have a plan for succession. He's not totally supporting Damon, but he is saying, hey, we already have this. Now, Hightower ends up saying, like, you were just supporting him or blah, blah, blah. Like, that was in last episode. But here, Corliss says, well, at least the princess has a plan. So there's another piece here where he's kind of speaking out. You can kind of start to see, once again, that he is aligning with the Dragon Riders. And I find that interesting. So this guy who is, like we were just saying, very good at not only being able to build wealth, but calculate risk and all of that, he keeps kind of aligning with the Dragon Riders. You know, in this universe, that's probably the way to go. (laughs) We we still have to see how all this plays out. I don't know what happens. I did see that season two has been already... Already renewed. Renewed, yeah. Yeah, there was no way that wasn't going to happen. Well... Um, and it's it's funny because I'm trying to think, does that mean that we're going to get the whole Fire and Blood story over several seasons? I'm not going to say anything. Okay. Do you know this answer? Well, I know. I know what happens in the book as far as how long this story is or how short the story is. Okay. Well, I will say something. It's longer than one season. <laughs> <laughs> Because then it just makes me think, like, okay, I have to really look at some of these things. Because I was thinking about how much I enjoy sometimes these first few episodes. But I was somehow thinking that this was going to be fit into a whole season. And then, I don't know what I was thinking, I guess. But that, like, these set-up episodes were going to be for just this season, let alone for seven years or something of seasons. Um, and so you have to really pay attention to all these setup things because there's a lot of choices being made. Right. How might this manifest in season seven or whatever? <laughs> well, then they send Renera off to go help with the Kingsguard selection, give her a task, which to me seems quite important. So even though it was dismissive, this is actually a, a big decision, I would think. But Viserys can't be bothered with it. Um, although Hightower does come along, and so does um, Sir Harold. Well, Sir Harold is always right. He's the bodyguard, yeah. Um, and he seems to still respect his position, regardless of who you might align with. Um, it, he doesn't overstep. He, it, at least that's what it appears like. Well, I, that's the Kingsguard job. I mean, if you remember, like Barristan Selmy, for example, he only flipped when he was fired. If he hadn't been fired, 
he probably would have stayed loyal to Joffrey because oh, yeah. that's what a Kingsguard does. He, he was loyal Kingsguard. to being a Kingsguard, though. Right. And I think that's the distinction. Um, right, not not loyal to the person of Joffrey, but to the position of the king. Yeah. Right. So the first knight's big contribution to the safety of the realm is catching a potential poacher. Potential, not even an actual <laughs> poacher. Right. This is another show of how the lack of war and battles and violence that have been taking place over the last, like, what was it, 70 years. And and so I think by the time when ha- uh, Game of Thrones come along, there were battles quite regularly. Yeah, in, in that lifetime, the there's Robert's Rebellion, which in itself was a huge war that they could make into a whole show if they wanted. Right. Given Westeros is so big and the houses and just the discontent that can happen, there's skirmishes all over the place. Uh, and, and it's commonplace. So it's not hard to find season warriors were here it's just it's such a different take of what we were used to when game of thrones starts like basically all the people we're introduced to have battle experience ned robert all of this and and not just from that one war multiple ones and they're also like great warriors correct like like they already have their reputations they're i I mentioned it in our shorter podcast but arthur dane barrison selman robert baratheon are possibly the three best warriors westeros has ever known and they're all on the same timeline you know yeah and and so it it is comical they meant it that way it's another illustration of how the small council just doesn't have it right and hightower is good at playing the game of thrones from this peace perspective under a king like the series it just looks like he's going to be so out of his depths of being able to actually plan ahead and foresee really obvious things that now this 15 year old girl so easily in a moment understands there's only one um and that happened to be sir Kristen cole uh when happened, this... happened to be the handsomest knight in the realm well <laughs> who she already had noticed and looked at i'm not complaining <laughs> <laughs> um i'm wondering if there was any symbolic significance to her standing up on that little step to look over of that is that an illustration of how young she is yet that she would need that still is it a way to show that she is elevated amongst all these other people because she's royalty um is it the fact that she still needs help right now but there'll come a point where she doesn't need help it's just this is me really nitpicking that when they go out of their way to show us something that they had to be clearly intentional like they could have not had that scene and it wouldn't have changed anything. Yeah, I noticed <clears throat> both times we watched it, they were very deliberate with their camera angles there. Mm-hmm. They had her like off to the left of center. And the angles were real real nice here. But then when she chooses Kristen Cole, Hightower wants to play politics or he wants to talk politics. He's like, well, this this other guy's family is very important to us. And this is blah, 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 blah. So to your point, they're thinking about different things. And it almost takes a child-level innocence to pick the obvious, right? She hasn't been playing the game for 30 years where it's all politics and all sweet talking and all fake smiles and stuff. She's like, well, isn't it obvious we should have a good fighter as, as the number one priority? But I think she's also aware of like, she's the heir. This is someone who would be protecting her too. So... Well, and everywhere she goes, she does have a bodyguard. I can't tell if it's always um, Sir Harold, but even at the very end when she storms out, a bodyguard immediately follows her. Except for Sir Harold went later on with, with Hightower to to Damon, and so that guy really like fudged up because she she snuck out and yeah. Anyway, yes. that, that bodyguard was bad. Right. Yeah, that's true. I didn't think about that. 
Or at least he didn't report her to the king or whatever. Right. That, that was actually something I noticed, that he only found out that she was gone after she returns. Right. So that was something I pointed out last episode that they didn't tell him when right. Damon first came. So there, there does seem to be this thing where they definitely don't tell the king some noteworthy things. Mm-hmm. So Hightower is, is doing his thing. I also think he is trying to wield and manipulate Renera here. He is trying to still control her. And she has nothing of it. He's all about the gentle nudges and suggestions. Much different than Corliss, who says directly what he wants. <clears throat> and we can talk about that later with the, the marriage stuff. But also, they, they made it a point to show Rainey's was watching all this happen. Um, yes. So two times it showed her from across the room watching. Hard to know the exact significance of what they were trying to show with that. I'm just trying to remember, but it's not like you just see random people, even from high houses, around for a lot of royal duties she's not interfering but she's allowed to be there and watch and clearly other people would know that and could take note of that all right next scene is uh, Viserys with his model you know his, his model city which has developed in the last six months I did wonder if the introduction was the same model city um, you know shown from a different angle uh, but regardless Alicent is there and they're, we can see that over the last six months, their relationship has progressed to be more comfortable with each other. And he drops that, that figure. She picks it up. So definitely some symbolism in there. Speaking of symbolism, at the end of the episode, of the first episode, he nicks his finger on the Iron Throne. And now we see his finger has a bandage on it. Um, and it, it remains this visual reminder of the injuries he is sustaining from being a ruler on the throne, literally and figuratively. Perhaps contributes to him his fumbling the figure, although that festering wound on his back seems to have disappeared, or at least not been addressed so in the last six months. So that was probably more symbolism and not a real cause of concern. What we are getting, though, is that he continues to get nicked by the Iron Throne and they turn into festering wounds of some type. I mean, like later on, and we'll talk about when we get it there, his finger is necrotic. It's dead, like the, the tissue, it's black. So we have the scene with Alicent and, and King Viserys, and then it cuts to Alicent and uh, with Rhaenyra. And I just thought it was interesting how they edited these two scenes, how they had them come one right after the other. And it really shows how she's befriending both the father and the daughter. And there's that friendship there because it feels like a friendship, but it does make you wonder, is she playing them at all in any kind of way? Or is she so naive that her befriending in this way is going to cause conflict and be problematic at some point? Like, I'm trying to... You mean, is Allison so naive to be playing both sides? You mean to be continuing a friendship with... Yeah, because she's actually using the confidence that she's achieved with both of them with her relationship with the other. So Viserys is saying, I'm worried about Rhaenyra. She, we're not really talking. She's not talking about her wounds with her mom. And he's not wrong. And then she uses that information in this very next scene. She helps Rhaenyra talk about it, confront some of her sadness. So she's using the information she's getting from each of them with each other. Yeah, she also, it's the way I, I looked at this scene, is a little bit different than when we first meet them together, which was a little more like friends Alicent seemed maybe I'm reading too much into it a little more motherly caretaker-ish in this scene than she had in their scene from the last episode 
that's not necessarily to say that she knew she would become her stepmother, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's like there was a shift in tone and in the way she she spoke and looked, I thought. And she also encourages Rhaenyra to talk, you know, talk about her mother. And then she also nudges Rhaenyra to talk to Viserys. And because Viserys had said in the last scene that, you know, I wish I could talk to her. I wish she would come to me. And But imagine if she's only friend with one of them. This is where she's using her her relationship with both people and them confiding in her to then do that. But she's not, they're not like, like these really duplicitous machinations. They, she is trying to help them. There is right. this caring aspect where, you know, with Hightower, her dad, you can kind of feel there's almost like that slimy like aspect to it. So where I'm kind of at with her is, is she that good or is she kind of naive about all this yet? And that it kind of, She's got something, she's got a big lesson coming of how this goes. Well, I think her and Hightower, her and her dad, play the same way. And sometimes I think we use this metaphor of playing the Game of Thrones a little too much. They're similar to each other and that they they direct things indirectly. So Viserys, you know, says that I wish Rhaenyra would talk to me. And then Alicent subtly suggests that Rhaenyra talk to Viserys. So she's making what Viserys wanted to happen. But it's like, it's, but if, it's if through suggestion. It's through, it's it's subtle. It's behind the scenes. My only thing, though, is Otto Hightower is clearly playing the Game of Thrones. I don't know if Alicent is. She might just be being friends to the king because she gets what it's like to lose someone. Like, she and Rhaenyra have both lost their mothers and around the same time and loved their mothers. It's a huge loss, so they connect on that. And, but... She also relates to the king just in terms of losing someone that you really loved. And she might just be trying to help them out. Her motivation isn't for the... It's not a game and it's not for the throne. It's just being a caring, understanding person. And that's what I'm trying to understand. Or it's both. I just don't know. Well, I I do think it's both. And I, I honestly think it's both with Otto, too. Even though he's clearly a master manipulator. But where's the caring with Otto? I haven't, like, even in well, any of his scenes with Alicent, he never comes off as caring or compassionate. There's none of that Ned Stark. It's it's almost all the Tywin. Well, he does go to Damon at immense risk for what I could tell no good reason to further the game. I think he was posturing and trying to indebt himself to the king. So the king can be like, huh, Corliss isn't standing up for me, but Hightower is. In the whole way that Hightower is telling Rhaenyra about what Kingsguard she should pick because you want to unite houses in this way, Viserys could see, oh, well, Hightower has gone to bat for me in these moments when I've needed it. He was the one who stepped up. So I think he's ingratiating himself to the king. But he is the one who stepped up. And there was a good chance he wasn't coming back from that. It's, I don't know so I, I, that. My, my only point is that I think it's both. I think that they're trying to improve their position like everybody does in real life and they're playing the Game of Thrones. But I also think that they're also real people who have duties and it's not 100% just playing the game to further their own position. But before, we, we can get to Hightower when he meets Damon because there's a couple more scenes before that happens. Mm-hmm. And one of them is uh, Corliss's meeting where they propose the marriage to the daughter... And Corliss makes it clear that Viserys looks weak. He makes it clear a few times in this episode, but he's he's expressly saying it in their meeting with Rhaenys and Corliss and Viserys. So who are all the people who have pointed out to Viserys now that he appears weak? Well, Corliss times five. 
Mm-hmm. And maybe Damon. And Damon specifically yeah. says, yeah. because you're weak, that's when they were fighting in episode one. So again, notice how people are aligning in the groups that they fall in. It's subtle, but the the show is drawing lines here of where people are going and, and that they tend to have a, a, more than one thing in common. I, li- I like the metaphor that Corliss used also. He said, you can sail into a storm or around a storm, but you can't just wait for it to happen. And it seems like Viserys is big on waiting for things to happen. And he says specifically, I don't fight a war until it's unavoidable. He's letting a lot of things happen around him. Well, and we'll get to it because it's the final scene later here, but there's something that Damon says to Corliss, which was like, yep, that's probably true. So now I'm going to contrast Corliss, because we talked about this before, and was this a bold move of Corliss to propose the marriage? And you said it's not that bold, and you're, you're going off, or you're aligning with what um, Strong said later, that it was a calculated move that fits his position. Yeah. And I'm saying it's more of a bold move, and my reasoning is, it is not a bold move if it worked, but he put himself straight out there to where he could be rejected and all that that rejection means. Now, what else he could have done, or what I think about what a Hightower or like a Tyrion Lannister or somebody like that might have done, is had somebody else suggest the marriage, plant a third person in there to kind of whisper it into Viserys' ear, and then if it gets rejected, he doesn't lose face. You know, it's just like, he can still be pissed, it could still be whatever, but he doesn't directly go to the king and get shot down and then have to now stand up for himself or prove his worth or et cetera, et cetera. So I think it was a bold move. And Corliss, especially in the second time through that I watched it, he is too aggressive. He sees himself as an equal or as he sees himself perhaps as a superior to everyone around him. And people have to keep reminding him that he's not. But that, that was my take on this, this scene. I do, I do wonder, though, you could be right with that. And, and I, I think we have to see. I, I haven't really, that's not what I've taken from it. What I've kind of taken from it is that, not that I agree with this overall mentality in general, but he comes from a very, very powerful land of Valeria uh, and a very, very powerful house from there. And that he even points out that uh, his house was even more powerful than the Targaryen's. I think he feels a bit slighted in this new Westeros realm, especially after he has proven himself so much um, with his wealth and his prowess with the ships. I mean, he owns half the Navy. Like, it's it's a big deal. And they keep kind of treating him the way that they do Rhaenyra. And I, I think he's got a little bit of a chip on his shoulder, but not for nothing. And so even though he keeps getting put in his place, I, I think it's from being put down well, and ignored he, for a lot of his life. And I, I think he's kind of just getting tired of it. And you speaking about his quote about a storm, he's heading it straight on by suggesting this match. Right. Yeah, he's earned his ego. It's just a personality difference. And this might all work out for him in the end, right? But he's just one of the more aggressive... Or it uh, might work out with other people better. Right. But he, And he may even be superior to the king in every way. He's just not the king and in, in, in this world that matters. But he does have a chip on his shoulder, that's for sure. And then we cut to dinner with Renera and Viserys and... She says, at the small council meeting today, and then right away Viserys jumps in. And I think he presumes to understand what she's trying to say, but he also arrogantly shuts her down. Not just her idea, because she goes, I had some insights. 
and then he goes, you will learn, and they talk over, uh, they talk over one another there. So I think he's trying to be kind and let her know, oh, don't worry about it. You didn't screw up as much as you think you did. And what she's trying to say is, I maybe didn't go about it as well as I could, but this is what I wanted to say. And he just, he doesn't view her that way at all. He's not giving her any space to be anybody but a silly little cupbearer. So yes, that happened. But before that, they start discussing briefly the mother, Emma, and he says, I regret that we haven't talked about that over the last six but months. she brought it up first. She brought it up first, right. And where I'm going with this is that this was that Hightower nudging, suggestive approach that Alison plants in her head that gave her, like, this is what Viserys wanted. He wanted to discuss this, but he didn't know how to bring it up and was too scared or whatever. He'd rather face the blur and the Black Dread than talk to his daughter. So Alisant nudges Rhaenyra to do it, and Rhaenyra does it. So this this is, I just like the contrast between how the Hightowers operate and how uh, Corliss operates. But yes, you are right that she gets shut down um, for her suggestion at the small council meeting, which again, seemed like a pretty solid suggestion to me. All right, next scene, going back to that symbolism of the, the cut-up hand and the maggots chewing on the dead skin. What, whether this actually leads to something, like if he's going to, something's going to happen to him the way it happened to the hound where he got sick and fell, or the way it happened to Khal Drogo, how a little cut turned into what ultimately killed him, or if it's just pure symbolism. We don't know at this point, but they're, they're laying it on thick with all these, these cuts and, and well, things. Well, and I remember in... Game of Thrones and in the, the book series, they talked about the Mad King constantly had scabs because he was nicking himself all the time. And they make a point to say that about the Mad King. And here we're seeing the series, he tells us that his back wound in episode one is from the throne. We see him nick his finger, and now we see it's become necrotic. So this just makes me wonder is this kind of the, the way that, and, and I might really be reaching here and right. I know that, but like, but their way of showing that when someone's not very adept at some of this that they they really struggle and tend to nick themselves with the power of being a ruler and getting infected so we're, we're taking this as symbolic so you don't think any of these festering wounds are going to send him into a fever pitch and kill him or, or do you think that might happen i'm just asking i know what's going to happen but i'm asking your I, prediction i believe that he's going to die by the hands of another human and not even if it's through dragon or something like okay. not not necessarily i think that but like i think it's going to be a human in some sort of way and not uh, like a, an infection so these are symbolic wounds yeah so he brings up with the the maester and with high tower that corliss proposed this this marriage otto points out that she is young so he's very subtly coming up with a reasonable objection i thought it was interesting <laughs> how he initially brings this up and Hightower's immediate response is well that's a matter for the small council and then Viserys is like yep and that's exactly what I'm doing right now but yet it is still not a small council meeting right, this... it is only two of them it's the very thing that Hightower says what it, it should be and then goes along with it when he's now included so I thought that was kind of an interesting way this... that it's like okay now I'm okay with it this small council is divided because then he goes yet again to strong and discusses mm-hmm. it again separately. So this is, <clears throat> these people are all not all on the same page. Orvisiris is doing this on purpose with at least some awareness that people are going to speak to him in different ways, especially depending on the setting. Um, Were I him, I would probably do it that way too. People are much better in private conversation. I, I, I really agree actually, especially on something like this. 
But now the Grand Maester, sorry, did you have more to say there? Oh, I was just going to comment that there was a lot of eye contact and, and, and glances between the Grand Maester and Hightower here, where I felt like I was picking up on a closeness between Hightower and the Grand Maester in the first episode, and I feel like it's definitely here, the fact that they're both here in this particular scene, but also how they look at each other at different moments where it's not that hidden. So if, if the series wanted to see it, he could easily see that. But these two are buddies, Hightower and, and the Grand Maester. But the Grand Maester did point out a strength of marrying Corliss's daughter, which is that it would heal the wounds from the Great Council, where the queen that never was was overpassed. Mm-hmm. So this would be a way to address that. So they did take opposite sides of the pro-con argument. Isn't it interesting that the Maester talks about healing wounds? Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nailed it. I also wonder, too, that... It's to your point of being in the background of, of the manipulations and being more subtle that if the Grand Maester does not point out something that obvious, it will show so clearly where he's aligned and where he stands and how biased he is. So this, this allows him to still appear somewhat objective, even if he may not be. Well, now here's a masterful nudge from Otto. He says, oh... To, to be compelled to marriage for duty's sake. I can't even imagine. I lost my wife, too. So oh. so he's really laying it on there. Like It's funny. We do these reviews. We watch these shows closely. Had we not been doing this, I might not have caught that <laughs> how subtly they're doing it. Like These are smart writers, and these they're, they're giving a lot of faith to the viewers to be able to pick this stuff up. But I, I bet a lot of viewers don't catch this kind of stuff, and that's why these kind of podcasts are popular and stuff. There's just a lot in here. And you have to actively watch it to catch it all. But but yeah, so that's I keep using this word nudge to describe what the high towers do, but it's it's just so suggestive and it's just I like watching them play it because the actors have to be a certain way, the writing has to be a certain way, it has to be on point for you to see what's happening. Alright, and then the series meets with Lena Lena. I think Lena. Alright, we're gonna go with Lena. So they have their, their little discussion, and it's a little bit awkward to watch. You know, she's a child, he's an adult. In the book, he's only, I think, 30. So this actor's probably closer to 50, right? Um, so it's... In real life? Yeah, how do you think the actor is? Not, not 50. Well, let's look it up. We looked it up. He is 49 years old, the actor. So you, you really notice that age contrast. And the way it's filmed, you're supposed to, I believe, notice the age contrast. She's quite a... Well, she's a lot smaller than him. But I really liked the way... She's angelic. She's got this angelic, childlike... Yes, she looks very pure, innocent. You know, the, I got to say, with these Valarians, they look really good with their uh, Corliss with his dreads, his white dreads. and. I was noticing, like, just the hairs and the wigs, also with Rainey's her hair, because yeah. it kind of comes up, but it kind of has this almost crown throne-like element. But then even the beautiful waves of, of Lena, like, I really noticed their hair and their costuming you can there's an opulence to it yeah it's so easy when we talk about the the plot and the story and everything to kind of forget it to mention the sets and everything but the, it looks so good the show looks so good and the, but i mean this specifically in the show of their house even compared to the Targaryens of the series damon uh, uh rhaenyra they're missing a little bit of corliss's family house well corliss is Oh, right. So <laughs> I was going to say Corliss is black and his children are mixed race, but then you mean even Rhaenyra's has her hair done up extra. Rainies. Rainies. Yeah. Yeah, right. I, I, I'm noticing them. 
but I'm not noticing other people as much. Right. Like their house in particular, I'm noticing more. Even the actual over the king and his family. So they look regal and powerful and noticeable. Very much so. Uh, and, and, and even how the, all the different actors are portraying their characters. I'm noticing them, like just the way that they hold themselves, their tone of voice. It just says something, I guess, a little bit of how they conduct themselves. No, and the queen that never was looks every part she would if she were the queen that was. <laughs> you know, like she, mm-hmm. she's always wearing that blue outfit. Her hair is all done up. She, she postures and walks powerfully. Which is interesting because she might have actually really been the best person for the job. And yet was never really seriously considered. And that, talk about a chip on your shoulder. We're talking about that for this house here with Corliss. But knowing I would have been so much better at this and yet well she does have a chip on her shoulder and we'll get to that in the next scene but I still want to talk a little bit about this scene with the Lena and Viserys so one I just I really liked where she recited what her dad told her to say it was clear that it went from conversational to memorizing lines and reciting them which I just thought was good acting and I also liked how Viserys asked what did your mother say knowing that a father and a mother were probably going to give different advice here one thing i think of note i don't know if this is going to come back in any way um it just speaks to the lore in some ways but one of the main dragons is still alive somewhere yeah vagar vagar the dragon still lives so i do want you to bookmark this particular scene and I may or may not tell you why later. It depends on what happens. But they make a point where she's not just saying, oh, you were the last dragon rider of Balerion. Or, like, they're talking about like one of the big dragons, one of the biggest that ever lived, of how Aegon conquered, right? Is this, am I remembering the three big three here? I can't remember if Vagar was an original ridey of one of the sisters. Let's look it up on Google. So Vagar was one of the initial dragons, one of the original dragons grown by the, the three conquerors. But Viserys does say that Valerian the Black Dread was the last dragon to remember old Valeria. So I guess that would imply, if they're being consistent, that Vagar was born in Westeros. So I, I don't know if, <laughs> if that's correct or if there was an error here, but he does say that. that yeah, no, you're right. So. so we might have found an error here in continuity. Yeah. So there, I'm being careful that what I say. So this, this conversation is relevant. It is different than what happens in the books. But Vagar, let's just say that this is important. Um, all right, next scene cuts over to Rhaenyra and Rhaenys talking. And this is, you know, where Rhaenys is basically saying, this, this is where we see, I don't, I don't know what the right word is, and I don't want to be offensive here, her bitterness at getting passed up by the men of the realm. Is it just that? And I'm not or, saying it's not justified. Yeah, but I, like this is one where like I do understand where you're coming from here. And and I did mention she's got her own chip that I do think is 100% justified. There's so many times that Cersei, you know, give it take away the fact that she's like pure evil. Um and not really because so much of her life hardened her to be who she was. Um but that Cersei would often comment if I had just been born a man. And, and, and I think Rhaenys is, is another example of someone who is very cunning and smart, knows how to play, would be good at this job, 
but she wasn't born a man. And it, it just must be so infuriating. So there, there is that piece. But I also think, and she says it here in this scene, I'm going to have the guts to tell you what nobody else will. Yeah. I am going to be more honest. And this is something to be respected, especially to a potential future ruler or someone who has power, is that I will be the one to tell you the truth, even when it does not benefit me to tell you that. She's not ingratiating herself here with Rhaenyra. They're not being, they're not, like, she's being, there, there's a little snarkiness going on here. But she is honest when Rhaenyra, like, snaps back of, like, does it bother you? And she's like, of course it does. And so, but what I like about this is Rhaenys is actually really showing that she's willing to be that unencumbered opinion, especially when no one else will and when it needs to be said. And I think that's valuable. She also points out thrice that it was the men of the realm. She doesn't blame Viserys. She doesn't blame Jaehaerys. She doesn't blame. She she blames men in general of the realm. So I mean, these are the people that were voting, right? So it's yeah. It's, it's I mean, fair. if it's a circle of men but, who are voting, then and those are the men of the realm. Right, but this is this is just very, very clear. What she's saying and who she's blaming and the world that she lives in and that. Her lived experience tells her it's this way. Mm-hmm. And so far, what she's noticing here, nothing's changed. That's true, but about four scenes from now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something different. Maybe five scenes from now. <laughs> then we cut over to Viserys and Alicent talking again, and he's talking about the, you know, the pressures that are upon him, and how he's expected to remarry, and we see her nervous tick. Again, for the first time in this episode, we see the nails under the table. We see her face. She's uncomfortable. She does not handle a lot of this pressure well. Well, and I think she's uncomfortable that whether she's genuinely in love or she's playing the games, I think she's uncomfortable she's going to lose him to Corliss's daughter. In this scene, you do wonder if she actually wants to be seen and cherished by the king and maybe not so that she can be queen, but just to be appreciated and and I think the way that she appreciates him but I thought it was a very nice move on her part where she said I'm sure she will enjoy your her time with you the way I have yeah so she's very much making him know the connection of well she's contrasting his his options she's showing she she brings it back to herself even though what she's doing is talking about someone else and then I was like oh that that's a that's a smart move depending on what her prerogative is and then she also, um, you know, presents the piece that she had repaired. So she went out of her way to present him with a gift, a thoughtful gift of something that matters to him. And it was well-timed mm-hmm. at this meeting. Because at this point, I don't think he's decided what he's doing. I think he's feeling the pressure, either 50-50 or perhaps leaning toward Lena. But now he feels genuinely something here. Yeah, and we see it. He, he likes her company. He likes their time together. She's easy she's not all this pressure that he constantly feels and i think for Viserys that might be nice especially in the aftermath of losing emma and the baby right she's not pushing him she's not pushing him she's not pulling him she's just there for him then we go over to the small council and this is where the stolen egg comes in i appreciated how this scene starts off with a line from Viserys. And I think it's spot on. And he said, Damon is like a child who wishes provoke uh, a reaction. 
And so basically, I need to not respond at all, or we're giving him exactly what he wants. And he seems, I, I agree with him. That is exactly yeah. to a T what David is doing here. Viserys has had his number, knows it, and knows what to do. And then it is not until you watch it happen where he gets played a little bit, even though that's not her intention, I don't believe, but where Rhaenyra asks, what egg was it? And that it's when he finds out that he went after his son's one word. He basically has an emotional reaction again, the same way how he had an emotional reaction with Damon when he find out the king for a day comment. Right. So that, talk about high towers like setting that up. Now he goes against his own advice that he starts off with and is it does exactly what he said he wouldn't do. Yeah. He knows Damon's trying to get under his skin, yet he lets him get under his skin. Mm-hmm. And this also in the last hour, he told... In the last episode, he told Hightower, why do you let him get under your skin? You know, he's just trying to. Mm-hmm. It's not so easy not to. <laughs> and anyone that has siblings or children can probably relate to this. <laughs> I don't know if it's worth noting, but the conversation was largely in Valerian. With the... Was it Valerian? So I feel like I can recognize Valerian because it has like this... <laughs> it's got a tone to it that sounds... It sounds regal. And I can recognize it. But here I was having a hard time recognizing it. It sounded more of like how Danny talked to Grey Worm. And not like, so... I, like, Which was old. So there's, what is there, High Valerian? I don't think it was High Valerian is, is my thing. Because I, I remember I distinctly thought this of like, that doesn't sound the way it does. And then they even have more Valerian later here. Or High Valerian. And so it, it sounds more and like these are... I don't know if they're slaves. But they could be. But the ones... They're the dressed, they're keepers. dirty. Yeah. yeah. They, like, and that says, and then maybe that's just what it's like taking care of dragons. Who knows? But I highly doubt they're speaking High Valerian. Well, if you are right, that is a good catch. We will try to look that up later. It's how online. it sounds. Yeah. It, there, there's a, a, a way that it sounds when you hear it, even if you have no idea what the words mean. Yeah, it did sound different than when Renera and Damon are talking later, which sounded nice. And this just mm-hmm. sounded... And it was, they were kind of like talking over each other, and it, it was a weird thing. And it's the first time we hear Viserys speak. If this isn't High Valerian, which I don't think it is, the only people we are seeing speak that still is Rhaenyra and Damon. Yeah, we'll look that up. So we've struggled with Damon's girlfriend's name, and it comes up here, Masseria. Yeah, I, yeah I, I, Masaria. <laughs> Masaria, Masaria. So here's the easy way to remember it. And they haven't done this yet in the show, but in the book, her nickname is Misery. So we can just say Misery from here on out if you want. She's called Misery from the, the time that Damon's with her. So I don't think I'm like spoiling anything. Here. Oh, okay. No, I no. just, I think it's sad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what my face is yeah. about. Of like, well, that's not nice. And then with the stolen egg thing, Corlys points out again for the second or third time in this episode that the realm is watching. So what you do now, the people are watching. So is he going to be strong? Is he going to be weak? I don't even know if the people are watching. How would they know? <laughs> but this is what he says. So Well, but it's also if it got out. And if it, even if it was only talks amongst the houses and stuff, it would not look good that Damon steals the egg that was the one intended for the son that was born. So it doesn't even matter if the realm is listening or any of that. It's just, it's the people who, who like whispers. Right. And th- then this is the part where, again, we're, we're trying to interpret. This is where Hightower... Stops the king from going and wants to go himself. So I, I mentioned this in our last podcast, but I initially thought he wanted some kind of private audience with Damon or something something sneaky by doing this. 
But it turns out he's just putting him like, I don't know if this is good for him or not. It worked out fine, but this was a dangerous thing for him to do. So this is one of those things where I, it's hard to know if Hightower and all the, a lot of these other characters are 100% always playing the game or if they're playing the game alongside with their actual real duties. Yeah, I, I think this is an area where you and I disagree on Hightower. I think he doesn't take Damon seriously. He he reacts to Damon. They clearly don't like each other. He's constantly undermining him and saying things about him. Like in last episode, he's talking about Damon, how he's going unchecked, and then Damon happens to be in the room of the small council. Like He does not hide that he doesn't like Damon and certain things here. And if there was enough like respect or fear or any of that... I think he would conduct himself differently, and he doesn't. So I think he honestly did not think he would die here. I think he knew that other people might die, but he is too important. So that that's my take of it. Yeah, I don't know. We'll see. I I like though. We shouldn't agree on everything, or we should we shouldn't we shouldn't. <laughs> well, it's just like real life. <laughs> <laughs> but we shouldn't interpret every everything the same, right? That's there's there has to be some ambiguity, and it's particularly strong with the high towers. Yeah, and then the next scene is just a quick one of Otto armoring up, getting ready. This is an example of that coldness that I was speaking of, of like, he's going to go do something dangerous and he's there. He finds time to criticize Alicent um, and bring attention to how she knows about her fingers. Right. And she knows what he thinks about it. And and then he's off and it's just there is such a coldness with him and and to this scene. I, I, I don't detect much warmth between those two at all. I didn't see it quite as cold as you, but yeah, I totally get what you're saying. But he did grab her hands, not in a ashamed way, but in, in a bit of a caring way. And then he also said, she's the most comely girl in the realm. So that, that means but beautiful. But... I, I found that just to be a way he's complimenting himself and not her. Um, one thing I wanted to point out, this scene was, was real short, but the music starts getting really good here. It starts making an eerie kind of horror music type sound, which continues into the next scene when they land at Dragonstone. And I just thought it was really well done. I did notice sound effects and music a lot more um, in this episode. The scene with the series and Rhaenyra where they're eating dinner, there's the loudest cricket ever throughout that whole <laughs> right. scene. To the point where I almost thought, is is that in our house? Is that? Then we get to what is probably the main event of the episode, or at least what or closest to what we'd call an action sequence. And it's just at Dragonstone when Otto's group meets with Damon's group. So one thing I want to point out is that this scene does not happen in the book. So even though I've read the book, there is a lot to be fleshed out. Basically in the book what happens is we learn that Damon stole the egg, Viserys demanded it back, got it back, and it's all done pretty quick. So it, we show we see that it so created... the egg thing <coughs> does happen. The egg thing does happen, but it's like, remember the book is written like a history book. So all the details of who was there and what was said... And even if there was violence or not, none of that is fleshed out in the book. I just know that he stole the egg and he ultimately gave it back. But it could have been something that he stole the egg. They have this little small council meeting where they say he stole the egg. And then the series is, goes to Damon and says, give me my egg back. And he's like, sorry, bro. And that's it. Right. Yeah. They're, right. They could have fleshed this out any way they wanted. And they made it and they did it the right way. They made it tense. They filled in a lot of gaps. You didn't know if anybody was going to die. So I like that. Even though I've read the books, I did not know how that scene was going to play out, except that ultimately the egg would be given back. I also want to point out from the books that Misery, Miseria, Misaria, Misery, was actually pregnant in the books. So she was pregnant and ultimately miscarried the baby 
on a ship when the ship got rocky and Damon was mad at Viserys over that. But this is again like just kind of really quickly said in the book and it's not there's no meat on the bones of any of the details. So that's an interesting change and I guess we just you know go right into that discussion how Misery didn't know that he <laughs> said she was pregnant and that they were supposed to get married. So Damon's making all this stuff up for uh, what do you think his reasoning? I think he was just going off half cocked with stealing the egg and with saying that they're going to get married and he's going to take the ways of old Valeria and have a second wife just because that does not go down well in Westeros. So this um, is just more houses. of the the attention seeking. Oh, he, he yeah, and he he's using the he knows where to stick the knife in. So that's what I think those things are. And it's what we kind of talked about in our our first impressions episode where he's not really considering his impact on other people of these tactics that he's doing. Like, I think he stole the egg, and I think he was purposeful in stealing the egg, knowing it would get their attention. I don't know if he knew how much it would hurt. And then here, I don't think he stopped to think how much he is putting Missaria in a very precarious and dangerous position by doing this. Because now people are really paying attention to her a lot more than they did before. And she's saying, hey... You can't put such a target on my back and then abandon me in these ways. I do find it interesting that the showrunners have chosen to make it where Masaria can never get pregnant. Because here in the, the book, knowing that she actually did, it just makes you wonder a little bit here of intentions within the couple of what they want from each other. So like if Damon did want a family, he can't ever have it with her. But he's clearly not opposed to taking or threatening two wives so maybe i have a whole harem of people that can eventually get pregnant they're doing a good job of you just don't know what damon wants except that he wants to be not forgotten and wants to be heir in some way but what he's playing at and what his reasoning is 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 he just this you know kind of i think he wanted to make sure like again he does know where to stick the knife in but not even just that he knows how loud he needs to be in order to get attention so I think if he just stole any old egg, it may not have been loud enough. Stealing that specific one was definitely that. I think that's more his prerogative is the loudness and knowing where to stick the knife in over he's doing it to hurt. Don't think he's trying to hurt Viserys or Rhaenyra with these actions. I do think he's trying to get their attention and make sure that he does. The way that the scene concludes He clearly did not care that much about having the egg. The egg was just an instrument to get their attention, to bring about this meeting or some sort of clash of some sort of way. But it wasn't about the egg. And he says, where's my brother or where's the king or whatever he says. This is where Otto lies. And Otto says, the king would never lower himself to a meeting like this. He called it a mummer's farce. Right. Suggesting that it was the king's idea for him not to, for the king to not come. But as we know, it was Otto who told him not to come. When he said that, it shows the camera goes to Sir Harold. Yeah, who kind of yeah, kind of because Sir Sir Harold knows the truth of it. So Otto's lying here, perhaps to cause further dissent between Damon and Viserys, because Viserys would have gone had Otto not intervened. Uh, really quick. Speaking of the egg. 
I didn't catch it the first time we we watched it, like where it stood out to me. But the second time, I was like, "Holy shit! He brought the egg with him. Who would do that in this?" Oh, so he's ready to give it up. Yes. Yeah. Because think about it in, in this time and age and what's happening here. Why would he bring it? It, it is a priceless piece here. He never intended to keep it. That's why he brings it. He's casually bringing this egg to this meeting. And if it was really important to him, that thing would be hidden inside Dragonstone. Also, when he's talking to Rhaenyra, and as you said in our first podcast, and we I don't know how much I want to talk about it again because we talked about it there, but you are completely correct to say that she called him out on his BS and said, you're going to have to kill me because this is the logical conclusion of the things that you're doing. And he doesn't do it. The way it was filmed and the way he was looking and stuff on our second watch, it didn't look to me at all like he was ever going to do it. Like, he, yep. doesn't, he doesn't look threatening. He's not facing her. He's not standing over her. He's kind of like shied away from the beginning of the conversation. I almost took it that he was frustrated that he got called out this soon with the game because it means he can't play that same hand or strategy anymore because Renera at least knows. I don't know if the rest of them could all hear this uh, exchange, but he knows that she knows that he's not really after it then or her or the throne. So he can't go about posturing in that way because he brought it to a head. She met him where he was. Yeah, he's like a... (laughs) I don't know what the right analogy is, but he's just a, a a kid who keeps trying to do things, keeps trying to be annoying and poke people, but he's never really getting what he wants. Why, why do we always use the example of a kid who likes well, negative attention? Because he's petulant. You know, that's that's the best word for him. He's just he, a petulant. He is like you know. a child, yeah. But then when Renera shows up on the dragon, which was filmed very nicely with the, the mist and everything, we get... It was filmed nicely. I almost thought it was that dragon that uh, Viserys was talking about. Oh, Vagar. Yeah, and I was like, oh my god, this is epic. Like, the, the old big dragon. and. <laughs> well, but we get the off. first scene of two dragons together that square off on either side of each other. So it didn't look particularly like vicious or anything, but there was, you could see Damon's dragon eyeballing Rhaenyra's dragon as he flies in, and they line up on other, opposite sides of the bridge looking at each other. So this is just, um, I think, some foreshadowing of dragons um, being on opposite teams here. And they also look very different from each other that, that I like. So Damon's dragon is nicknamed the Blood Worm. So he's long and red. He's got a long neck. He's, he doesn't look particularly muscular or armored, I guess, compared to Rhaenyra's dragon, which is like gold and has thick-looking scales and everything. Cyrax, so, right? Uh, yeah, one is Cyrax and one is Caraxes. When dragons eventually fight, if that happens, it's nice that they're not just clones of each other. There's different styles of dragons. There are also two indications in the scene, one with Daemon and his dragon and one with Rhaenyra and hers, how they're, and this is similar from Game of Thrones with Danny and her dragons, that there's a connection between them, like similar to like a dog and its owner of how they are protective but what I think is different with these dragons is that they are perceptive and like connected to their owner. Not just that they happen to be around and can perceive a threat, but that it's almost like if the dragon rider feels threatened, then the dragon is already there and knows what to do. There, there's a symbiosis of some type there because it, it's not until the small council people who came to confront Damon pull their swords that you see Damon's dragon start to get agitated. And then when Rhaenyra lands, 
uh, and Hightower is trying to strong arm her yet again in this episode. He does it. He tries several times. He fails each time. That's what I like about Renara a little bit is each time in her own way. Um, you know, she picks her Kristen Cole and, uh, but she came to this meeting, um, but she, he tells, I think Sir Kristen Cole, actually, you know, please get the princess and protect her. And she goes, be careful, my Lord, something along that, like my, my dragon is very protective of yeah, me. So my dragon startles easily when I'm. Yeah. Something like that. that. But yeah. like, so that's the second time where we're like. The dragon isn't getting anything yet, but she's kind of, I think she's telling the truth, but she's also saying, you got nothing on me with that, which, again, is kind of my ongoing point of how can you not take her more seriously? Something that happens right before Rhaenyra comes, just speaking about Damon's character and Sir Kristen Cole here. Damon does such a, this reminds me of just like men's locker room crap of... We all know that Damon knows who Sir Kristen Cole is. Right. And yet he calls him by the wrong name on purpose. And then when Sir Kristen Cole corrects him, Damon then says, oh, I forgot who you were. So purposely calling the wrong name and then saying you're not even worth remembering. And Kristen Cole comes back with, I'm sure you remember when I took you off your horse. So he is standing up to Damon. And if you look at Damon's reaction... Damon kind of smiles. I think he appreciates and respects how Sir Kristen responded to him because basically Sir Kristen does exactly what Hightower does not. He does not let it like look obviously under his skin. And I think I think Damon almost enjoyed that and, and had some respect for him from that. Cole could have had a better line than he did. He, he should have said, oh, did I hit you too hard? Yeah, so, you know, that something would have like been that. better, yeah. And then in the book, when they fight, it, it doesn't happen like in the show exactly. So Cole beats him in the joust, just like in the show. But then they fight later in the melee, rather than because Damon is mad that he lost the joust. And then Cole beats him in the melee by using his morning star to knock the sword out of his hand, to knock Dark Sister out of his hand. So it's roughly the same thing, but... Both fights were clean in the book. They were tournament fights, which Cole won both times. Hmm. They didn't seem very clean in the show. Right, yeah. They were going for dirtier and grittier in the show. Uh, We were talking about Damon and Rhaenyra, how she confronts him and brings to a head his actions and what he's doing. Damon says, like, this is one of those things where, like, if you pay very close attention to what actually is said and done and what is not... So this is one where you can definitely tell how people can be led one way, but it's not really what is going on. Damon says that Rhaenyra comes and she's like, you're in my ancestral seat here. You're you're not supposed to be here. And he says, this isn't yours until you come of age. Implying that he'll give it up. Yeah. He's, He's just, I mean, he is reminding her it's not actually yours yet, but it is Viserys. So her main point of that, but what he's saying is, well, it's not yours yet. So I'm not, I haven't taken it from you. Yeah. I've taken it from your dad, but not you, which I think is significant. And I also, Renera very quickly picked up on the fact that Damon's girlfriend wasn't pregnant, that Missaria. It's just, it was a very astute, like given everything that's going on, how she quickly noticed that and kind of called him out and being like, look. And that conversation was in Valyrian or at least not in English and Missaria could speak it. She could understand it. So she speaks either high or low Valyrian or whatever they were talking in all right anything else to say about this scene i do think renera rightly claims that she prevented bloodshed we talked about this in our last podcast but otto's plan 
again, no matter how many knights you have, it doesn't matter if Damon has a dragon, if there really is going to be fighting. So only her showing up prevented that if it was going to go that way. So other things might have prevented it. But if there was a fight, it doesn't matter how many knights Otto had. <clears throat> All right. So then we cut over to uh, Viserys is admiring the new chess piece that our, um, Alicent had repaired for him. And then he goes to talk to Strong, Lionel Strong. Mm-hmm. So this is his third small council meeting that is separate from the rest. And Lionel Strong seems very sensible, very good advisor. Advises him to marry Lena, which of course we know he isn't going to do. Seems right now that Lionel's a good, good guy for the king to lean on. Yeah, and the difference between Strong here and the Grand Maester, who both offered very sensible, logical ways to interpret him marrying Lena, the Maester seemed more like, I gotta say this because I have to kind of thing, where Strong really came off and evaluated in a certain way here. He, he's, it felt like a very fair and honest interpretation which is exactly what the series wanted right. and isn't it funny that he he gets what he wants and then he goes against the fair and honest feedback um, and it was during the scene where it really became clear to me that I don't think the series really likes his cousin or Lord Corliss and he says I, I felt the gaze of Lord Corliss on my back all this time and part of me is just wondering how true is that I don't think it's not true but I don't think it's as foreboding as the way the series makes it sound one of them calls corliss envious in this meeting i can't remember which one but i have in my notes that calls corliss envious (laughs) and i just i from this i just got that he doesn't really like lord corliss so he doesn't really want to be attached to that family or deal with them or whatever and it, it, it just i feel like how this episode ends that the series is now just making decisions based on what he wants what matters to him his own feelings and really just not the realm. All right. And then um, Viserys and Rhaenyra meets again. And this is actually, we, we talked about the music uh, a, a little bit ago. But this was a moment where I know in the Game of Thrones, some of the characters got their own music. I wouldn't be shocked if Rhaenyra gets her own music. But this was a time where the music sounded kind of epic. When she's coming back to the castle and right before that they, they, they meet. And, um, and I just I remember being like, oh, that would be really awesome if that's her music. Yeah, and they have a nice heart-to-heart about their mom. And one thing I noticed here on the second viewing is that Viserys says more than once, so he's upset that she went to Dragonstone. He says, you're my only heir. Mm -hmm. And then he says he won't replace her as heir. Mm -hmm. So he brings this up a few times this episode. So it's not just that you're my heir, and then if something happens to her, it goes to Damon. It's you're my only heir. And he then proceeds to say that we need to strengthen the line. And it did make me wonder, did her impulsivity of doing something potentially dangerous here prompt him to get on this marriage thing to strengthen the line? Not to supplant her, but just to add more backups. So a lot of times they call it the heir and the spare, and then maybe a couple extras. Now let me ask you, if he does have a male heir with Alicent, what do you think he's going to do? Do you think he's going to replace... So I believe that is going to happen because what a way to make this story interesting and bring it to that place. I mean, it, it makes this more of a story. I don't believe the series. I'm seeing him make decisions based on what he wants and where he's at. And he already says this episode that he'd rather face Balerion the Black Dread. I think he's going to lose his nerve. We're already seeing him lose his nerve. He, 
The crown is very heavy for him. I think he will end up going along with what all the men of the realm want, what it seems like everyone else seems to know except for these two. Uh, so you think Rainey's is right in her assessment? Yeah, I do. And I do think he's going to end up having a son. I mean, this I don't know. You do, I do not, but... I ain't saying shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, and then one other part of this conversation is that Viserys emphasizes that he doesn't want them to be estranged, and Rhaenyra reassures him that she understands that he has a duty to remarry. So she's thinking, obviously, not Alice. I think she is thinking anybody... But her best friend. Like, literally. I I think it's so absurd to her that he could ever choose her 15-year-old best friend that she feels so safe in her support and her words that it just never occurs to her that he would do something like that. Like, he would know better. And she, of course, doesn't know they've been hanging out and meeting and stuff. Right. Yeah. Which there's that betrayal, then, of how far back this really goes for both her father and Alicent. All right, and then the last scene is... At, at the small council where he announces who he's going to marry, catches people off guard, upsets Corliss and Renera. Well, and look at who leaves the small council when he drops this bomb. Um, and so, and I only say that because I don't know how often people leave the small council. I'm sure that they do and things can get heated. But two people actually leave the room, which I feel is symbolic. I've been trying to make ties to lines being drawn and where people go. And I've been, like, throughout all this episode, I've been talking about lines being drawn where we've got Damon, Rhaenerys, and Lord Corliss all kind of together here and how they keep kind of getting singled out and not a part of these other groups. And this is yet another example of that division and where the lines are because Lord Corliss gets up and walks out and then Rhaenyra walks out. And I feel like that's symbolic of like the, the furthering uh, division here that's happening between these various players and what's going on. And then finally, the closing scene is Corley's recruiting Damon, essentially, to go fight in the Stepstones. I liked this scene. I, I, it seemed a very in-tune move for Lord Corliss here because now he realizes... No one's going to listen to him at the small council. No one really cares about his alliance enough other than just blind loyalty. And he's kind of, he's got to look out for his house here again. He does not want to be crippled by losing these shipping lanes in terms of wealth. But he also feels the need to remind people of his worth because they clearly have forgotten. And I think he really thinks that Damon is an ally in this, of he also uh, feels maybe the need to remind people of his worth and that they might have a common cause. Also, Damon is fully capable of helping him address this issue. And Damon doesn't care about pissing off the king or going against rules. So they can go fight the crab feeder together and people could, and then the king could say, I never ordered this. They acted without my authority. And Damon is clearly the best choice for him to uh, ally with. He brought it to the king a couple times, got shot down. And Damon needs something to do. He can't just sit in Dragonstone all the time because he's going to cause problems. Well, and I think Damon knows this because Lord Corliss requested Damon. Damon went to Lord Corliss's house. Lord Corliss did not go to Dragonstone. So the fact that Damon could be summoned and go do this says something. And I, I agree. I think Damon knows he's getting restless. He needs something. I brought this up earlier, uh, or hinted at this, but Damon makes the comment, the king or, or my brother was never very good at that. 
And then Lord Corliss goes, at what? And he goes, being king. And I think that's a very telling statement there. Yeah. And we spend a lot of these episodes kind of criticizing Viserys, but I don't know if that's quite right. And in, in the as far as compared against other kings, he doesn't seem that bad. <laughs> you know, he's soft and he's, he's... But, I mean, are we talking best of the worst then, though? Well, right. He's better than Magor, better... Maybe, Better than Robert, probably. Oh, yeah. Um, Robert was awful. So Robert didn't act like king at all. Right. But at least Robert kept his hands off and let other people do stuff, um, for, for better or worse. But uh, I think that was a problem, because some of the people he let do stuff really did a bad job. Right. But Robert did reign over 17 years of peace until he died. But whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is that whether Viserys is a bad king or not, he's certainly perceived that way. And... I did also like in the last scene at the small council and in this scene that Corliss has to be reminded that Viserys is king, Corliss is not. Mm-hmm. And I like that Damon said, you know, I can talk about my brother this way, but you can't. So Damon and Viserys, despite all, still have this brotherly, yeah. this complicated brotherly love. Yeah, I agree. Um, do You've mentioned a little bit about Lord Corliss a little bit that needing to be checked. And that's, that's probably true. And I don't think Viserys is that bad. It's just... His move of picking Allison, that's bad. And so I'm going to really hold judgment for that. It, it doesn't seem a very strategic move in any way, except for to the high towers and to the crown. But like, you already have your hand as the high tower. High tower's whole um, advice about choosing for the Kingsguard, you want as many families ingratiated to. He's already got the high towers with him being hand. So it's just showing the rest of the realm how they're buddy buddy. It's just, but. He knew he was going to hurt his daughter, and then he does it anyway. I get why he doesn't give in to Damon most of the time, even though other people don't respond to that. But I do think the way he responds with Damon, though, is the way he is with a lot of other things. And he's just very avoided. And that it's kind of what we were talking about with the Lord Corliss when he's talking about the storm. Viserys really is waiting for the storm to come. That's not a mark of a good ruler. So when Damon says he was never very good at it, I, I think he's right. He's, he's a good guy. Just not a good king. Game of Thrones seems to have like skin affliction things. So at least in Game of Thrones, we have grayscale as the skin affliction. And it, it does play a big role in the show for a couple different characters. But in the show and book, definitely for uh, Stannis' daughter. So I just think uh, grayscale, there's that. But then we get a few shots of the crab feeder here. And there's definitely some skin thing going on. Skin and mask. Like, it, it looked like one of the Sons of the Harpy type masks, mm-hmm. and his skin's all fudged up. Yeah, that's true. So yeah. I just, I was curious. I'm like, okay, what is what is this? And I'm always trying to, you know, apply meaning here, but I just thought that was an interesting thing because it's not like just some guy feeding people to crabs. It's some guy who's got some serious affliction going on and feeding yeah. people to crabs. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's our review of Season 1, Episode 2 of House of the Dragon, The Rogue Prince. Last thing I'll say is that this story is going to be very hard to adapt. So far, they're two episodes in, they're doing a good job, but trust me when I say this is a complicated and tough story. So I, I hope they do a good job. How many seasons do you think it'll be? They got material for a lot of seasons. Okay. And one thing that worries me is that they're going to condense it. They've already done two time jumps in two episodes. So how many time jumps are they going to have to do to tell this story? We'll see. But so far, so good. Oh, 
We rated the first episode. I, I think this is better than the first episode. I'd give it a nine, nine and a half. There's almost nothing I didn't like, except for the fact that they forgot that there was a dragon where Damon was. I mean, it's still early, so they, they have to do yeah, set up. And I, it wasn't the most amazing episode to me, but I am trying to be fair to good directing and, and music and acting and, and editing, like all the things that go into it. I mean, there's some that are just so amazing. So when I say, like, I'm trying to remember what we said around for episode one, but I, I'm putting these around like a seven, eight range, which is a really good rating for me. Um, so, like, if I go for, I guess, maybe seven last week, and I'll give this one an eight. Well, in the context of what it is. So it's not an action episode. So I'm definitely going to like, you know, the big fighting episodes better. But in the context of a shorter, intrigue-heavy chess piece moving around episode you can't really ask for much more i actually wouldn't differentiate my ratings with action or not it's just how well is it done and does it make sense to the story is it helping with characterization that sort of thing this one it was a good episode all right thanks for listening talk to you guys next week